Amen. All right, we're there in Hebrews chapter number 6. And of course, uh, we are going through a verse-by-verse study in the book of Hebrews on Wednesday night. And we are going to be finishing up chapter 6 tonight. Last week, we dealt with that portion of chapter 6 between verses 4 and 8, which is the most probably the most controversial and uh, difficult part of the book of Hebrews, and one of the most controversial and difficult passages in the entire Bible. Uh, so we dealt with that last week and talked about that. And if you missed that, then I'd encourage you to check it out uh, so you can learn what that passage of Scripture is about. But we're going to continue on uh, after, of course, speaking about uh, rejection and really reprobates and the fact that the nation of Israel had been rejected. And we're going to look at verses 9 through the end of the chapter tonight, Lord willing. We'll make it to the end of the chapter. And what we're going to do tonight is, as we look at this passage, Hebrews 6, verses 9 through 20, uh, we're going to look at it under two headings, and we're going to answer two questions. Under two headings and two questions, hopefully that helps you organize your notes, and of course I encourage you to uh, take notes. And the headings and the questions uh, have to do with the uh, phrases that are seen in verse number 9. I'd like you to see it there in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 9. The Bible says, But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. And the way that, that, that phrase, uh, things that accompany salvation, is a very famous phrase or well-known phrase in the Bible because uh, of what it's saying, the fact that there are things that accompany salvation. However, the way that it's worded in the verse may be a little difficult uh, to understand. So I, I want you to understand that what we're looking at when we read this, it says, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. And the and there is connecting us to the previous statement when he says we are persuaded better things of you. And the idea is that we are persuaded regarding things that accompany salvation. I just want you to be clear about that because what he's going to do in the next several verses is talk about things that accompany salvation, and specifically two things that accompany salvation, which is the two headings that we'll uh, look at tonight, and then two questions um, that we can uh, learn uh, from that. So I'll give you the questions up front. The first question is, what are the things that accompany salvation? Now, there's lots of things that accompany salvation, and we could preach a whole sermon on that subject, probably even a whole sermon series on that subject, uh, but we're just going to look at what the writer of Hebrews brings up regarding the things that accompany salvation. And then uh, I'd like to answer this question because this is something that many people believe accompany salvation, and I think we should look at it from Scripture, and it is this, do good works always follow salvation? And oftentimes people believe, if you were to ask somebody, what are the things that accompany salvation, what someone might respond is, good works. And many Christian people out there today have this idea that if someone is saved, works will follow. If someone is saved, things uh, will change as far as good works that they produce in their lives. So we should always, we should just not assume just because we hear something uh, that it is true. We should try the spirits to see whether they are of God. We should search the scriptures daily whether those things are so. So I'd like for us to look at tonight and what is it exactly that the writer of Hebrews is referring to when he says that there are things and that we are persuaded about things regarding uh, that accompany salvation and also this idea of do good works uh, always follow salvation. So two headings. The first heading is this. If you'd like to write it down for your notes, uh, then that would be good. And the first thing is this. One thing that accompanies salvation. And one thing that accompanies salvation is found in verse number 10. I'd like you to see it. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. For God 
is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. What the writer of Hebrews begins to uh, talk about here is the fact that there will be awards for our Christian service. In fact, that's the first heading, if you'd like to jot that down, awards or the awards for our service, the awards for our service. And of course, we're referring to the fact that God is going to reward us for the labor we do. God is going to reward us for the work that we do uh, in this life uh, for Him. And there are several things that I'd like you to notice about these rewards or just really about Christian service in general. The first is this, the motivation for Christian service. And what is it that we're trying to accomplish when we do Christian service? And of course, when I say Christian service or work, we're talking about when we work for God, when we volunteer, when we do things for the Lord. I want you to notice two things that are referenced here in this verse. In verse number 10, it says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Which ye have, I want you to notice this word, showed, this is the word I want you to see, toward his name, showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered, and I want you to notice this word, to the saints. The Bible says that when it comes to our work, and labor of love, if it is appropriate work, if it's something that we are doing in the ministry for the work of God, that we do it and we should do it and it should be showed towards his name in that we have ministered to the saints and do minister. And this is something that uh, I think is good for us to think about and to consider and something that maybe you might find basic, but if you've never heard it before or, or never really thought about it, uh, especially if you're a newer Christian, then it's something that you need to do that. And it is this, that Christian service is always towards God and through people. Christian service is always towards God and through people. What do we mean by that? Well, keep your place on Hebrews 6. Go with me, if you would, to the first book in the New Testament, the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 25. It should be fairly easy to find. First book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 25. When we're talking about Christian service, when we're talking about working, and look, uh, once a year here at Verity Baptist Church, we have a worker appreciation weekend where we appreciate all of the workers and volunteers in our church, and you'd be shocked how many volunteers we have in a church, even even of our size, how many volunteers we have that help in all sorts of different uh, uh, areas. When we're talking about volunteers, obviously we've got a, a whole host of soul winners that go out every week, and praise the Lord for that. But even within the church, we've got the ushers and the safety team, we've got the song leaders and the pianists, we've got the orchestra people and people that work uh, with with the websites and the sound booth, and uh, and and uh, you know, there's just all sorts of things that happen all the time. People that volunteer to help with the homeschool group and the PE classes and, and all those things. And even the work days, those are all what we're referring to when we're talking about uh, Christian service, the fact that we get involved in the work of God. The writer of Hebrews is saying one thing that accompanies salvation is hopefully the fact that you get involved in the work of God And with that comes rewards. With that comes awards. There are awards for our service. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints. But I want you to get a philosophy for Christian service. And the philosophy is this, that Christian service, when you and I do something, volunteer in some way for the work of God, it should be done towards God 
It should be done towards God. But the Bible doesn't just tell us that we are to serve towards God. Because if God just said, well, do something for God, you know, people would get this idea and, well, I'm going to go on a hike on Sunday morning and just worship God in nature. The Bible teaches that that which is done towards God is always done through people. The Bible says here, which ye have showed toward His name, whose name? God's name, in that ye have ministered to the saints. Any work, anything that is done for God properly and biblically should always be done to God or towards God through people. You say, I'd like to give towards the work of God. Well, you give to God through the local New Testament church. You say, I'd like to serve God. Well, you serve God as you minister to the saints and do minister. The idea is this, that Christian service, everything we do, and by the way, let me say this, and I don't, I don't think I need to say it, I think you understand this, but we should always understand this. What we do, we do not do for people. We don't volunteer uh, either for love of the pastor, which is probably rare, or because we're afraid the pastor is going to guilt trip us, which is probably more accurate. Um, we don't volunteer because it's expected or because if we don't, the people, all of that is an improper attitude regarding what you do for God. What we do for God is always done through people. It's always done to people. It's always done with people, but it's always done because of God. And I'm going to show you here a passage in Matthew 25 that highlights this, but let me just say this, this concept is found all throughout the Bible. And it's not just church, by the way. You men, the Bible says when you go to work, you got to work hard for your boss as unto the Lord. You say, well, are you working for the Lord or are you working for your boss? Both. You're working for the Lord through your boss. And you are to work for your boss as unto the Lord. Are you there in Matthew 25? Look at this passage. Matthew 25, verse 35. Matthew 25 and verse 35. Notice what the Bible says. This is Jesus speaking, and this is speaking about rewards at the end. He gives this parable, and he says, For I was unhungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee? or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And notice the response here in verse 40. And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. The idea is this, that when you and I work for the Lord, for God, remember, if you go back to Hebrews 6.10, for God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward His name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Let's always remember this, that Christian service, when we work and we volunteer, it's towards God through God's people, so that God, so that the Lord Jesus Christ one day might say, hey, let me reward you because I was naked and you clothed me. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was hungry and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. And we're going to say, when were you ever hungry and we gave you food? And, he, and he'll say, when you did it to someone else, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. 
So when you get to heaven and God says, I, I, I want to reward you because you faithfully worked men at your job. You didn't steal from the boss. You didn't, you didn't sit there and, 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 and spend hours uh, gossiping around the water cooler when you should have been working. You didn't show up late and leave early and take more breaks. I appreciate, Jesus is going to say, let me shake your hand. I appreciate all the hard work. You, and you're going to say, well, when did I ever work for you? And you're going to say, well, when you worked for your boss, when you worked hard for your boss, you said you did it unto me. You know, some of you men, Jesus is going to reward you one day in heaven and say, I really appreciate all that work you did in my house. Well, when when did we ever work in your house? Well, when you did it for the church house, you did it unto me. The idea is this. When we volunteer, we do it towards God through people. Show toward his name in that ye have ministered to the saints. Now you say, well, that's kind of basic. Is it? Well, I think we all know that. Really? Because I kind of have this idea, go back to Hebrews chapter 6, that if you and I understood that what we do, we do for God, not for people. We may be doing it through people, with people. We might be ultimately on this earth doing it for people in the sense that we're giving them drink. We're helping them in in, in whatever area we are. But I just kind of had this idea that if you and I honestly thought that what we do is for God, we do it towards God through the local church, towards God through people, if we really got this idea that what we do, we do for God, you start showing up to orchestra practice on time. You hear me? You stop messing around on your phone while you're supposed to be doing safety team duty. Are you listening to me? You stop messing around as an look. If you were usher, now if you're ushering for me, I can understand why you're not very good at it. But if you're doing it for God, if you're doing it for the Lord, if you're doing it for your uh, Lord and Savior, you might do it better. You might take it more seriously. I understand that what we do, I understand that we sit people. I understand that we play physical instruments. I understand that, look, I, I write sermons for you, but honestly, it's not for you. It's for God through you. And when we realize that what we do is for God, we might take it more seriously. We might actually care about the value we produce. We might actually care about the excellence we produce. We might actually pay attention to detail and try to make sure that it's good. If it's for God. So we have to understand this philosophy of Christian service, that it is towards God, through people. And if it's for God, then let's give Him our best. So you see the motivation of Christian service. Then I'd like you to notice the description of Christian service. Notice the description, notice the words, the adjectives that are used here to describe Christian work. Hebrews 6 verse 10. For God is not unrighteous to forget your... And then the writer of Hebrews uses this four-letter word that people don't like to use. He says to forget your work. The word work means effort. It means effort directed to produce or accomplish a task. He says work and Labor. The word labor means, I don't have to tell the ladies what the word labor means. They know what the word labor means if they've had babies. The word labor means productive activity towards a goal. 
He says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Verse 11, And we desire that every one of you do show the same. Notice this word, diligence. What's diligence? Constant, earnest effort towards the desired goal. To the full assurance of hope unto the end. And then he gives us, he's been giving us all these Synonyms, now he's going to give us an antonym. He says, if you don't understand what work and labor and diligence is, maybe you'll understand this, verse 12, that ye be not slothful, <laughs> lazy, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. When it comes to the work of the Lord, let me just be clear about what the writer of Hebrews is saying, and it is this, that when we volunteer for God, it's work, it's labor. It's diligence. It's hard. It's not for slothful people. It's not for lazy people. The ministry is not for lazy people. People get this idea that a pastor preaches on Sundays, that's all he does. I don't know if that's what other pastors do. Maybe I'm not doing it right. But you know, the easiest thing I do in my vocation is preach sermons. It's all the other things, Monday through Saturday. All the other burdens, all the other phone calls, all the other issues we help people with, which we're happy to help people with, those are the difficult things. The Bible says, Paul told Timothy, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. He said it's work. The ministry is work. Go to 1 Thessalonians, if you would. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Keep your place there in Hebrews, of course. If you go backwards, you're going to go past the book of Philemon. Titus, 2nd and 1st Timothy, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st Thessalonians, 1st Thessalonians chapter 1. Do me a favor, put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there, because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. 1st Thessalonians chapter 1. And look at verse 3, the description of Christian labor. And let me just say this. Get this idea that what we do for God is work. So on Saturday morning, when it's cold and you're tired, and, and your flesh is telling you, ah, I don't want to go soul winning. Get this idea. Yeah, serving God is work. It's labor. It's diligence. It's, it's, it's not for the slothful. Not for the lazy. Notice 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3, remembering without ceasing. Notice what Paul writes here. Your work of faith and labor of love. Work and labor and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Keep your place there. We're going to come right back to it. Go back to Hebrews chapter 6. So we saw the motivation of Christian service. And we saw the description of Christian service. It's work and labor. Motivation is that it's towards God and through people. And then I'd like you to notice, thirdly, the compensation of Christian service. The compensation of Christian service is this, that you and I will receive a reward, Hebrews 6 and verse 10. That's actually what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. He's saying, he's saying there in verse 10, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. Look, if, if the pastor doesn't acknowledge something you did or give you credit, and look, I, I, oh, I try to do my best to thank people and, 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 and acknowledge, but I, you know, I'm a human being like anybody else. But you know who will never forget is God. And by the way, who you're supposed to be doing it for is God. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, 
which ye have toward, showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Look at verse 11. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope, notice these words, unto the end. You will have to wait to the end to receive your full reward. But the things that accompany salvation, the things that accompany salvation, see, we get salvation. Salvation is the fact that I don't have to die and go to hell. The fact that when I die, I, I can go to heaven and I can be with God for all of eternity in heaven. But that's not it. There are some things that accompany salvation. And one thing that accompanies salvation is awards and rewards. Because God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. Let's run some verses. Go to Revelation 22, if you would. Last book in the Bible should be fairly easy to find. Revelation 22, look at verse 12. Revelation 22 and verse 12, the Bible says this. Revelation 22, 12, And behold, I come quickly, this is Jesus speaking, and my reward is with me. Now who's going to get these rewards, these awards, and these rewards that accompany salvation? Is everybody going to get them? Well, God is not a communist. So notice, and behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his, here's the word, work shall be. You and I work for God. We labor for God. We don't work to be saved, but once we are saved, the Bible says that we were created for good works. God wants us to do good works. Look, you were not saved to sit. You were saved to serve. And God says there's something that accompanies salvation is its rewards. My reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. You're there in Revelation 22. Go back to Revelation 14, if you would. Revelation chapter 14, look at verse 13. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13, the Bible says this, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may, notice these words, Rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. I love that phrase. I love how it's worded there. The Bible talks about a believer in Christ, that he can rest. When we go to heaven one day, we can rest from our labors, they, that they may rest from their labors. But then the Bible says, though they rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Here the Bible says that, We'll rest from our labor, but our work will follow us. And let me just explain real quickly the difference between the word work and labor as it's used here in our King James Bible. And the idea is this, that the labor is the action. The labor is the effort, the actual uh, action of putting in, into uh, whatever it is that we're trying to accomplish. That's the labor. The work, then, is the result of the action. Here, the Bible says that when you go to heaven, when you die, you will rest from your labors, from the action of actually working, but your works will follow. Their works do follow. You say, what do you mean? Let's, let me just give you the example of the building over there. The building over there, the, the labor is the guy staying till midnight, right? Working and taping and doing whatever it is that they were doing to prepare uh, for the painting. The labor is all the muddying and the texturing. The work is the building. One day we'll move over there and we'll say, wow, look at this, look at all this beautiful work. 
Look at all the work that's been done. The work is the result. The labor is what gets us that result. The Bible says that one day we will rest from our labors, but, praise God, our works will follow us. Our works will follow us to heaven. We'll get reward in heaven. Why? Because it's a lot of labor to parent children properly, but the work is the result of parenting them well. It's a lot of labor to start a church in your living room, to, to go soul winning and knock doors and, and win converts and baptize them and bring them to church and teach them the Bible. There's a lot of labor that goes into that whole process, but we can look around tonight and this is the work. The result of the labor is the work of God. So we will rest from our labor and their works do follow them. If you kept your place in 1 Thessalonians, go to 1 Timothy from 1 Thessalonians. You can go past 2 Thessalonians into 1 Timothy. It's just right there. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, then 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5. I want you to notice this idea that your works follow you. 1 Thessalonians 5, look at verse 24. Some men's sins are open beforehand. This again is talking about judgment. And the idea is this, that some people go into judgment and we're very aware of their sins. Their sins are very manifest, right? I mean, Hitler went into judgment with us being just very aware of his sins. Certain individuals go into judgment, and they don't have to be as famous or as heinous as, as Hitler. So you can look at an individual that they die, and it's very apparent that they were maybe a sinful individual, a wicked individual. Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, notice what the Bible says, and some men they follow after. Some people's sins are not as clear, but you know, God is the judge, both for saved and unsaved. Look at verse 25. Likewise also, so verse 24 is the negative, here's the positive. Likewise also, the good works of some are manifest. Some people, you look at them when they die, and you, it's very clear the good works that they accomplish for God, the things that they accomplish for God. There's men of God and, and that, that maybe die, and we can look at them and say, well, look at everything they accomplished and they did for God. Likewise also, the good works of some are manifest, meaning they're clearly seen beforehand. They're seen before they even die. They're clear. But then the Bible says this, and they that are otherwise. What does that mean? all the Christian workers out there who don't have the platform, who don't stand behind the pulpit, who don't get the credit. They that are otherwise, the Bible says, cannot be hid. See, God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. You say nobody sees it, but God sees it. Nobody knows it, but God knows it. Hey, they forgot it. Pastor never even mentioned it. Pastor never even said thank you. But God won't forget. He's not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. Because some people's good works, some are manifest beforehand. But don't worry, because they that are otherwise, those that are not manifest, those that have been forgotten, those that have not been identified, those cannot be hid. Why? Because God is not unrighteous to forget your work. And labor of love. Go back to Hebrews chapter 6. 
So we see one thing that accompanies salvation, and it is this, the awards of our service, the rewards of our service. The motivation is that we do it for God through people. The description is that it is work, it is labor, it takes diligence. And the compensation is this, that we will be rewarded, and God will not forget. Look, the score always reads the right score. The scoreboard in heaven always reads the right score. God isn't missing anything. So that's one thing that accompanies salvation. But then there's another thing that accompanies salvation that the writer of Hebrews brings up. And to be honest with you, when I first was studying this out, I, to, to me it seemed a little random. To me it seemed random that you would go from the awards of our service to this next subject until I really began to meditate upon the context. We've been talking a lot about context lately, and Hebrews is a book that maybe even more so context and an understanding of the context is needed. Because if it were me, I would have done this in, 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 in the di a, a different order. I would have done it in reverse order if I was writing it. But I'm not the Holy Spirit, of course, as you're probably aware. Here, he talks about the fact that there are things that accompany salvation, and then he brings up the fact that one thing that accompanies salvation is the awards of our service. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, verses 9 through 12. But then in verses 13 through 20, he brings a different thing up, but this other thing also accompanies salvation. And it is this, assurance of our salvation. So the awards of our service accompany salvation, but assurance of our salvation also accompanies salvation. Aren't you thankful that assurance accompanies salvation? That along with my salvation comes the assurance of my salvation that I know that I know that I'm saved. His spirit and my spirit are able to fellowship and my spirit tells me that I can cry, Abba, Father. So we see here the assurance of our salvation. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Hebrews 6, look at verse 13. He says, for when God... Now, he's about to bring up Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant, and I think the, the reason for that is because of last week's sermon. The writer of Hebrews just got done explaining to them that the children of Israel have been rejected, the nation of Israel has been rejected, and they cannot be renewed unto repentance. But that doesn't apply to the Abrahamic covenant, because the Abrahamic covenant was not fulfilled in the nation of Israel, it was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He says, For when God made promise to Abraham... Because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. I like that. Because, and look, you and I should not do this as Christians because the Bible says that we should not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Right. But what, what do worldly Christians do or just unsaved people do when there's, they, they, they really want to make sure you know I'm not lying, or this is very serious, or I'm telling the truth, or I am going to for sure do this. What do they do? They'll say, I swear to, I'm not going to say it because I don't take the name of the Lord in vain. I don't even say gosh, because that's just a euphemism of the same thing. Should I have more respect for God's name? The Bible says, hallowed be thy name. You should only use the name of God if you're actually speaking to him or actually speaking about him, not to make a point. And definitely not as a curse word. But here, the Bible is saying that men, when they want to make the point like, no, I'm, I'm serious, this is serious, I'm, for sure I'm going to do this, or no, I didn't do that, they'll say, I swear to, and why do they do that? Because that's the highest authority in the universe. Well, God never says, I swear to. He just says, I swear by myself. I mean, that's what he says, look at verse 13. 
For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Saying, surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. Now where is this in the Bible? This is actually a quote from the book of Genesis. Let's look at it real quickly. Genesis 22 should be fairly easy to find. First book in the Bible, Genesis 22, and look at verse number 16. Genesis 22 and verse 16. Do me a favor, when you get there, just keep your finger right there in Genesis because we're going to leave it, and we're going to come right back towards that area of the Bible. I'd like you to get there quickly. Genesis 22. The writer of Hebrews says that because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Aren't you thankful that there's no one greater than our God? Genesis 22, 16. Here's where this is documented. Genesis 22, 16. Just to give you context, in Genesis 22, Abraham just passed the test of his life. God asked him to uh, sacrifice his son Isaac upon Mount Moriah, and he did it. And, and he passed the test. God did not have him kill Isaac, but he wanted to see if he'd be willing to do it. He says, because thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son Isaac. And he's going to give him this blessing. But notice what he says there in Genesis 22, verse 16. And said, this is God speaking, by myself have I sworn. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying when he says, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, uh, thine only son, verse 17, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed. That's what Hebrews 6.14 says, as the stars of heaven and as the sand of the sea upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gates of his enemy. So we see the assurance of our salvation. We see the assurance of God's promise. Now here, the promise was the Abrahamic covenant, but this can be applied to every promise of God. And the most important promise for us from God is the promise of eternal life. You say, what gives us the assurance of salvation? It is God's promise. The fact that God cannot lie. The fact that God has sworn by himself, by myself have I sworn. Look at, keep your finger right there, Genesis. Go back to Hebrews 6. Look at verse 15. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Abraham patiently endured. He obtained the promise that God made to him. Verse 16. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Uh, I think sometimes we read these verses and we normally think about them. And I want you to see what the writer of Hebrews is saying. The writer of Hebrews is saying, saying, is saying this, and, and specifically this is found in the book of Exodus. We're going to look at it in a minute. The idea is this, that men verily swear by the greater, and an oath of confirmation is to them an end of all strife. The idea is this, that when two individuals are at strife with each other, they're in conflict, they're fighting, when one of them makes an oath of confirmation, that is supposed to bring the strife to the end, to, to an end. Say, what do you mean? Go to Exodus 22. If you kept your place, your finger in Genesis, just flip over to Exodus, Exodus 22, look at verse 11. Exodus 22 and verse 11. The context, I'm not going to go through the context with you. You can do that on your own if you'd like, but it's two men in a dispute. Two men arguing. Notice Exodus 22, 11. Then shall an oath of the Lord be between them both that he hath not put his hand unto his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it, notice these words, shall accept thereof, 
The word thereof means the thing just mentioned, what was just mentioned, the oath. And he shall not make it good. So these guys are fighting, and one guy thinks that the other guy took something from him. And the law in Exodus was that when a man made an oath, the other individual would accept that oath and not make him uh, make good on what he thinks he's told. He would believe him as a result of the oath. The idea is this, that when somebody made an oath, it would bring an end of all strife. Because, they would, because if they were willing to take that oath on, then they were serious, which is why we get the cuss word version of that today. What the Bible is telling us here is this, that the debate, whether I am saved or not saved, am I secured in Christ or not, all of that, the, 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 the dispute ended when God swore by himself. When God, when God made the promise, that put an end to all strife. No more argument. No more reason to doubt. No more reason to argue it. We don't need to argue it. We're secure in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. No need to argue it. No, no need to doubt it. No need to think about it. Just realize that if you believe on Christ, you put your faith in Christ, you are secure in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back to Hebrews chapter 6. So we see assurance through God, God's promise, but not just God's promise. We also see assurance through God's character. Look at verse 17. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, that was Abraham, but that's us too, the, notice this word, immutability. When we talk about the attributes of God, the fact that he's omniscient and omnipotent, uh, the fact that he's omnipresent. Immutability is one of the attributes of God. The word means that he is unable to change, unchanging, unable to change. The immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath, notice verse 18, that by two immutable things. Now there's a lot of debate as to what the two immutable things are that he's referring to based off the context. I think that the two immutable things he's talking about is God the Father and God the Son. And I'll show you why here in a minute. But, you know, you can believe whatever you want. And by two immutable things in which, notice these words, it was impossible for God to lie. We might have a strong consolation who have fled to refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. What, what is it that gives us assurance? It is God's promise and God's character, because God is immutable. You don't have to turn here. Malachi 3.6 says this, For I am the Lord, I change not. Amen. So we see assurance through God, but we also see assurance through Christ. Look at verse 19. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, that whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of 
Melchizedek. We see that our assurance is through Christ, that he is our forerunner who has entered into that within the veil. Because if you remember, and I won't go into all the details, but if you remember, the tabernacle had the holy place and the holy of holies. It was rent at the crucifixion of Christ. And Jesus entered into that most holy place and he made the sacrifice for his blood. And that gives you and I assurance because he is the forerunner, uh, is for us entered, even Jesus. What gives him the right to enter into that holy place? The fact that he was made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But notice that the writer of Hebrews also tells us about the immutability of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just real quickly look at Hebrews 13 and verse number 8. Hebrews 13 and verse 8. Notice what it says. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. So we see the assurance of our salvation. The assurance of our salvation, Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. And I'd like you to quickly, uh, I'd like to spend the rest of my time. I've got about 15 minutes, and I think I can do this. Go to Romans chapter 4, if you would, towards the beginning of the New Testament. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Romans chapter 4. We went through the passage verse by verse, and I've taught it to you now. I hope it all made sense. We see the things that accompany salvation. The first is the awards of our service. The fact that God is not unrighteous to forget our work and labor of love. And the second is the assurance of our salvation. Those are the two headings that I told you we would study this out through. But then I told you that we would look at two questions. The first question is this. What are the things that accompany salvation? And we saw the things that accompany salvation are awards and assurance. There are other things. We could look at other passages. But in this passage, those are the things he brings up. The question that I struggled with was this, why would, he, why would he outline it this way? Why would he talk about awards and rewards and then talk about assurance? And I think the reason that he does it within the context is because he, he just got done telling them, look, there are some people and the nation of Israel in particular has been rejected. They cannot be renewed unto repentance. He said, but we don't believe that about you, because remember, he's talking to first century Jewish Christians. He says, we are persuaded better things of you, and he says things that accompany salvation, but the idea is that we are also persuaded of things that accompany salvation. So then he goes into the context of what are these things that accompany salvation, and the thing that accompanies salvation is the rewards that come with our service. But then someone might ask this question, well, what if I don't have any service? What if I'm a Christian or I believe, but I don't have any works? Then am I not saved? Because there are many out there who teach that if you are saved, works will follow. And I believe what the writer of Hebrews is trying to explain to us is this. If you believe and you work, there is something that is going to accompany your salvation. Your works will follow, and it is rewards. And then the question would come from someone else who would say, well, what if I have no works? And then he would say, well, you have something that accompanies salvation still, and it is your assurance. Because the idea is this, that the awards of our salvation, or excuse me, of our service, and the assurance of our salvation are not mutually inclusive. Meaning, you can have one without the other. You can have assurance of salvation without having any awards in heaven. 
And this idea that if someone is saved, works will follow, is just not correct according to the Bible. Now, I could preach a whole sermon on this subject. I'm not going to. I've already been preaching long enough. But let me just give you a couple of proof texts for this so that you can see it from the Bible and understand it. Romans 4 and verse 5. Notice what the Bible says. But to him that, I want you to notice these words, worketh not. Doesn't say worketh a little bit. Doesn't say work some. It says to him that worketh not. The example being given here by the Apostle Paul is, here's an individual who, how many works did he do? Not. None. Nothing. Nada. All right? Nothing. But to him that worketh not, but here's what he did do. But believeth. He did no works, but he believed. What do we do with this guy? Notice. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. Notice these words. His faith is counted for righteousness. Now, Romans 4, 5 clearly tells us that someone can have faith and believe or believeth while working not. So what this tells us is that being saved and having works are not mutually inclusive. One does not automatically come with the other. Now, should one come with the other? Look, God wants everyone to work. God wants everyone to serve him. We're not saved by works, but we were saved that we might work. He has predestinated us to do good works. God wants you to work. He wants you to labor. That's not a question. We're not, we're not uh, uh, arguing that. The question is, is it possible for someone to have faith and have no works? And the answer is yes. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now, people will say, they'll, they'll look at Romans 4, 5, and they'll get confused. Because isn't Romans 4, 5 pretty clear? Amen. I mean, can you get any more clear than this? But to him that worketh not, but believeth, his faith is counted for righteousness. That's pretty clear. And then they'll, they'll try to argue a clear verse with a more unclear James 2, 20, where it says, faith without works is dead. So, Christians will say, well, James 2.20 says, faith without works is dead, so therefore, you must have works with faith. And then they'll ignore the clear, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Worketh not, but believeth, his faith is counted for righteousness. That's clear. Faith without works is dead. Okay, well, let me ask you this. Does James 2.10 say that you will have works? If you have faith. I mean, is there a verse this clear? But to him that believeth, he will work. No, it says faith without works is dead. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, look, here's, let me just explain to you what it's not saying. It's not saying faith without works is non-existent. And if you look at James 2, the whole chapter, and you just study the context, it's been our theme, right? The context is this, that in our Christian life, if we're going to show people our faith, and if our faith is going to be profitable to others, then we must do works, because faith without works is not non-existent. Faith without works is inactive. It doesn't benefit anyone. It's dead. If I die tomorrow, does that mean I never existed? 
No, it just means I'm no longer active. I can't do anything anymore. I'm dead. Faith without works is dead is a terminology saying, look, you, if you want your faith to count for something, not for salvation, but to help someone, to profit someone, that it might be seen by others, then you better get to work. But it's not saying that you, if you have faith, you will have works, because that would make Romans 4 5 a lie. Let me give you another verse quickly. 1 Corinthians 3. You're there in Romans? Just flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Then here's another one that people will bring up. By their fruits you shall know them. And again, what's our theme? Context is key. What is the context of by their fruits you shall know them? He's talking about false prophets. And he's talking about what they produce. He's saying the way that you can tell if someone's a false prophet is you go to their church, you stand in their parking lot, and as people are coming out of the church service, you ask them questions, you talk to them, right? And if they're just, you're asking, you ask them, what do you believe it takes to get to heaven? What does somebody have to do to go, go to heaven? And if they're telling you, they, you got to get baptized, you got to repent of your sins, you got to turn over a new leaf, then that's a bad prophet. Do you understand that? Now, obviously, any church is going to have people that are not fully uh, on board with everything or don't understand everything. But look, by and large, if we just stopped right now and went through and start, just went through the auditorium and started asking people, what do you believe about salvation? I mean, I'm, I'm confident that 99% of you are going to give the right answer because you're saved. But if you go to the Catholic church and you stand in the Catholic parking lot, how many people do you think are going to give you the right answer? You say, why is that? Because the Pope's a false prophet. And by their fruits, you shall know them. Do you understand that? So don't give me the whole fruits, you shall know them. Read the context. Don't give me James 2. Read the context. It doesn't say faith without works is non-existent. It says faith without works is dead. And if you look at the context, it's very clear. It is talking about showing your faith outwardly, profiting other people, helping other people. And Jesus said the same thing. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with your Christian testimony. Say, so, well, can somebody be saved and have a, bad, have a bad testimony? Yeah, his name was Lot. You know, the, the Bible tells us in the end of the New Testament that Lot, in Jude, it tells us that Lot was a righteous man, that he was a just man who vexed his righteous soul. The Bible clearly tells us that Lot was saved. But if you and I never read Jude, and all we had to base our knowledge on Lot was what we read in the book of Genesis, you know what we would all say? That guy's not saved. In fact, the new IP would be like, yeah, that guy's a reprobate. I mean, that's what we would all think. And then God says, no, he was saved. He was just really backslidden. So look, just understand, the, you can't have lots in the Bible. You can't have Samson's in the Bible with this idea that, oh, if you're saved, works will follow. Well, look at the average Christian. 1 Corinthians 3, look at verse 8. I'm not talking about in our church. I'm saying in general. Most believers are not living that great of a, life, of a Christian life. Okay, we've got to finish this up. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, verse 8. Let me give you another example. 1 Corinthians 3, 8 is talking about the judgment seat of Christ to the end, right? The, the judgment coming at the end for all believers. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 8. 
Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. And every man shall receive his, notice these words, own reward according to his own labor. You are not going to get rewards in heaven because you assisted and because you were part of a soul winning church. You understand what I just said? You will get rewards in heaven if you're a soul winner. Well, I went to a church that went soul winning. Did you go soul winning? Well, I went to a church where people, got, uh, people were getting saved. Did you get anybody saved? Every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Look at verse 12. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. He's using an example, uh, but using materials here, and some are of value and some are of no value. Gold, silver, precious stones, like diamonds, those are valuable. Wood, hay, and stubble, I mean, in the Biden economy, wood's kind of expensive, but generally speaking, in comparison to gold, not so much. Look at verse 13. Every man's, here's the emphasis, work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it. Because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try or test every man's work. Notice these words, what sort. The word sort means what kind it is. What do you mean what kind it is? Your work, and this is what, and look, I don't know if this is literal, but what the Apostle Paul is telling us is that the judgment seat of Christ, God is going to take all the work you've ever done. Because look, Christians are not going to get judged for their sins. You're not going to be judged for your sins. Your sins have been paid for on the cross. But he is going to take everything you've ever done, all the work you've ever done in your life, and then he's going to throw it into a fire. And the fire is going to tell us whether it was gold, silver, precious stones, or whether it was wood, hay, and stubble. Because gold, silver, and precious stone are refined by fire. But wood, hay, and stubble are burnt up by fire. Gold, silver, precious stone are the things that are eternal. When we invest into the eternal. Now, how do we invest into the eternal? Well, remember, we serve God. Our service is towards God through people. When we invest in the lives of the souls of men. You say, well, I clean a building. That's not very eternal. But when eternal souls come to this building and sit down and learn the word of God and their lives are transformed and their children's lives are transformed, you have invested in the eternal. You understand that? You say, I show up to Verity Baptist Church and I clean a building that people sit in. That's not eternal, but the work that happens here, the, the work that happens in the building that people come as a result of you cleaning it is eternal. You say, well, what if I volunteered and I helped uh, clean the benches at the Little League? Look, that's good. That's not bad. That's a good thing. But when you clean the benches and you clean the field so people can come watch a game, nothing eternal happened. You understand what I just said? It was temporal. It was temporal. 
It was for this moment. It vanisheth away. So he says, the fire is going to reveal every man's work, what sort it is. Look at verse 14. If any man's work abide, if it abides the fire, which he hath built thereon, thereupon, notice his words, he shall receive a reward. Praise God. Verse 15. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. The Bible says that at the judgment seat of Christ, there are going to be some people who when God puts their works into the fire, it's all going to get burnt up. Everything they did was just for this world, for this life. Maybe it was good. Maybe it, was, maybe it wasn't even bad. But it was not of eternal value. But notice what it says in verse 15. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself was not saved. Is that what it says? But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. You know what this verse tells me? It's possible for someone to be saved and have no works. Wasn't that what Romans 4 or 5 already told us? It's possible for someone who's saved, who gets to the judgment seat of Christ, but nothing they did was of any eternal value. They did no work for God. It all got burnt up. You say, well, what's going to happen to that guy? He's going to go to heaven. He shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. Yet so as by fire. So look, this guy, he's going, to, he's going to be in heaven, right? I mean, he's going to be driving you around or whatever. He's going to be living in a tent. He's going to be homeless in heaven, but at least he's in heaven. He shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. Yet so as by fire. These verses would not make sense. If it were true that works always follow salvation. Now, should works follow salvation? Absolutely. Do they always? No. Don't believe me? Go into the ministry. Spend time with Christians. You'll, start, you'll figure it out real quick. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And 80% of the people shall suffer loss. But hopefully, you know, they're saved and they'll be in heaven. Go to Hebrews chapter 6. Let's finish this up. So the reason that he brings up these things, awards, he's saying, look, these are things that are coming to salvation. Rewards in heaven. And then the guy who's not a soul winner, who's lame, who doesn't read his Bible, who doesn't do anything, he's like, well, what about me? And he's like, well, you'll be saved. Assurance of your salvation. You got that. Now next week, Hebrews 6 verse 20 we're going to begin in on the subject of Melchizedek. Hebrews 6, verse 20, let's just look at it to finish up. Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We actually began to talk about Melchizedek in chapter 5. We've been on a little detour dealing with all these other things in chapter 6. And in chapter 7, right at the end of chapter 6, at the end of chapter 6, oh, Melchizedek comes back up. Chapter 7 is going to be all about Melchizedek. And we're going to learn about who is Melchizedek. Next Wednesday night, we'll pick it right up, right where we left off tonight, and I hope you'll join us for that. Let's bow our heads tonight, we'll pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word, and thank you for the Bible, and thank you for the fact that the Bible is clear. And Lord, help us to just understand that though we want people to work for God, we want that. Some people are going to believe and have no works, and that's just what the Bible teaches. 
and by their fruits you shall know them, and faith without works is dead, and all these other arguments are not what those things are teaching. Lord, help us to just be clear. Help us to be Bible-believing biblicists who say, what does the Bible say? And we just, when the Bible says it, we believe it, and that's it. Help us to make the Bible the final authority in every matter of faith and practice. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to have Brother Moses come up and lead us in a final song. Just want to remind you that there is, there are no work days today, uh, this week, excuse me, uh, guys, so just uh, don't uh, worry about